Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. You have provided for us. And not everyone in the country, Lord, is receiving a blessing. But for those who have, we give you thanks. For those who have been doing okay, receiving an income, uh, it's wonderful, Lord. And you are the one that provides every good gift. And for those who haven't been so blessed, those who have been out of work, those who are suffering, I pray, Lord, that you would use the hands of those who are believers to assist those who have nothing, whether believer or unbeliever. May we be a witness during this terrible time, not only in our country, but throughout the world. And we'd ask that you would stop this COVID-19. And if there are any politics involved in the shutdowns, Lord, I pray that you would just reveal that uh, to the people. Any kind of chicanery, any type of underhandedness, any type of misreporting, I pray that you would help us all to know what the truth is. And that's what we seek after today, Father, is the truth in your word. And we ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we recently covered the gifts. The gifts will pass. Love will remain. That was chapter 13. Therefore, love is more important than the gifts which are being misused inside of the church at Corinth. And the gifts are only for a moment, but they are meant to complement our worship of Jesus Christ and everything that we do for him. And they are meant for the betterment of the church, for those who are inside that they might receive a blessing from those who serve Christ. And certain gifts can be an impediment if they're not used properly. They can be a stumbling block. And Paul was trying to correct this type of thinking that was inside the church. And he brought some correction to those teachers who were leading people astray, telling them to misuse the gifts. And then we got into the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, and we will be getting into the resurrection of the body. But with the resurrection of Christ, I gave you four things last time, last week, the historical argument, the logical argument, the theological argument, and the experience argument for the resurrection. Of course, the historical argument was where Paul reminded the people of the gospel that he preached and by this gospel we are saved and he wanted them to hold firmly to it and he said if you hold firmly to the word i preached you uh, otherwise you have believed in vain that's how we are saved if we hold to that word and that word uh, firmly that is in there if we hold to the gospel the word firmly that is used it means if you keep it in the forefront of your memory If we don't keep the gospel in the forefront, how we are saved, what God did for us, how Jesus Christ was a sacrifice on the cross, if we don't keep it right up front, we have a tendency to drift. Just as if you're in your car or vehicle and you start texting and you keep out of the forefront of your memory and your mind the driving that you're supposed to be doing, you have a tendency to drift. And we will do that. And if you're not involved in fellowship, if you're not involved in being in the Word, if you're not listening to messages, if you're not working on your own personal devotional life and walk with the Lord, you'll have a tendency to drift. And you'll drift towards the default position, which is the flesh. And you have to work at being in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. But this dealt with the historical argument of Jesus Christ being the first of the resurrection, part of the the first fruits, so to speak. And he uses a logical argument next, the resurrection of the dead. And he says, to deny the body 
Our bodily resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Christ and also to deny the resurrection of Christ is to have an empty faith and to deny the resurrection of Christ means that the apostles were charlatans and the sting of death remains on those believers who have died if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection, the cross of Christ would be foolishness. There's no reason why he would have gone to the cross. And of course, that is a verifiable fact from history. You can go back and look at the historians that wrote about this specifically. Josephus was one and there were several others. And the apostles were willing to die for the fact of the resurrection, where before the resurrection, they all scattered when Jesus was taken to be crucified. And so the resurrection is indeed important. Then you have the theological argument. Of course, he based this on the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that Christ was the first fruits. And this is taken out of Exodus chapter 23, verses 16 and 19, and Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, where at the harvest time, they would take the first or the best of the harvest and they would dedicate it to the Lord. And then there's the experience argument. And the experience argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Even the pagans believed in the resurrection. And so he puts an end to this argument. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. And we were, or he was telling the Corinthian church to come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. In other words, there were some teachers there who were teaching that there is no resurrection. That it is only this life. They were uh, probably telling people, just live like the Epicureans. Just give in to every fleshly desire that you have. And Paul says this, stop it. Stop being ignorant about God and the resurrection of those who die. So we've been through the resurrection of Christ. We've been through the resurrection of the dead using those four arguments. And then there is the resurrection body. We have this hope. That our bodies, if we die before Christ comes back, our bodies will be raised from the dead and they will be transformed. This is called a resurrection body. In verse 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, But some may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? And this is a reasonable question to ask. If somebody says, they're going to be raised from the dead, or I'm going to raise this person from the dead, they want to know how this is going to happen. Because once we die, the functions in the body cease, the heart does not pump anymore, the electrical impulses in the brain cease to operate. And there are fanciful movies like Frankenstein, where you get the body reanimated, and of course that's a fanciful tale that is not true at all. And so people have this question, well, how's it going to happen? And he says, how foolish in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. 
It will be raised imperishable. It will be sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. So he makes the comparison, first of all, to seeds. If you grab a bunch of seeds and you throw them out, and if you don't know what kind of seed it is, it'll have a tendency to come up, and it doesn't look anything. The plant that comes does not look anything like the seed that has been planted in the ground. And he says the body is like that. The body is like a tomato seed. You put it in the ground, you would have no idea that you would get like a big beef steak tomato that you'd be able to slice or just bite into like an apple and it'd be so flavorful but if you put the tomato seed into your mouth and you started chewing on those types of seeds they don't taste so good it's not something that you would run out and go get but the fruit that comes from that tomato seed that is what the new spiritual body is going to be like it's going to be so much better it is going to be of benefit to everyone else who is around just like the tomato if you eat the tomato it's going to be a benefit to those who consume the tomato and that's what our spiritual body is going to be like but this body it is so corrupt that we are harmful to everyone else who is around us. Of course, we all understand we have this fallen nature and we have the new or spiritual nature. And the fallen nature constantly wars against the new nature where we know in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things I want to do are not the things that I do. And so he has this struggle on the inside. And we're commanded in Scripture to crucify the flesh. And that's a daily task that we're all supposed to be involved in. So normally the body dies, it goes into the grave. When resurrected changes, it changes as a seed changes into a plant. In order for a seed to produce the flower or the fruit, it has to fall to the ground, die, and germinate. And so that's why we all die. That's because we are under a curse, certainly, but God wants us to be transformed. So we're born with a physical body, but then we are changed where we have an eternal body. And that is one of the characteristics of the body that we will receive. It's eternal, it's everlasting, it's non-fading, it's incorruptible. Uh, for instance, I was working with my hands this week and I just tore some flesh off of my hand working uh, out in the field that I work in and it, it hurts a lot. It It's corruptible, it can be harmed and uh, the Bible says that our new body it's going to be incorruptible. It will not fall apart. It will not decay. It will not get scarred in any way. Then it will be glorified or without defect or blemish or infirmity. All you have to do is look in the mirror and you can see the blemishes that are there or the defects and especially those dreaded hotel mirrors that are five times or ten times the magnification, when you look in those, you might wince a little bit as you look into that mirror, and, and then you want to start doing something to the face that you possess to make it look a little better. And, and we're not going to have that problem when we get to heaven. We will be shining like the stars, and I'll give you those verses in a moment, but we are not going to have any defect whatsoever. Uh, my little grandson... Uh, I think he's approaching nine months now. You, you touch his skin and it is just so soft and there's not a single blemish on it. And you go, oh, smooth. That, that's the type of skin we'll end up having 
forever. It will even be better than a, a babe's new skin that it comes into this life. And also, it's going to be strong. We are going to, like we do now, we are the house of the Holy Spirit who is omnipotent. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we will have this strength that is supernatural. Also, it will be spiritual. It will no longer possess the natural body appetites. Uh, For instance, uh, Steve said that you're invited to have coffee and donuts. And I love donuts. I love all kinds of donuts. I love donuts like a bear claw. You heat it up and you slather it with butter on top and you take a bite into that thing or especially a a fresh out of the bakery a hot maple bar you put that in your mouth and it's so soft or a crispy cream glazed donut that just melts in your mouth something like that that that's a bodily appetite now the food in heaven i think it's going to be 10 times better than any kind of donut you can imagine but we don't have to eat in order to live. In this life, we have to eat in order for our body to keep on functioning. But there we won't have to because the life that we have does not come from food and it does not come from drink. It comes from the Holy Spirit himself. And we will also have a new name written on our bodies. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. So the name of Christ, and I don't know if it's Hebrew lettering or what it is, it's going to be on our foreheads. We belong to the family of God. And and it's kind of like Andy in Toy Story. He had his name written on the bottom of the boot. Well, God's going to put his name on our foreheads. And we're going to wear that and everyone will see it. We're also going to have on white robes. Of course, these are the righteous acts of the saints in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. And we will shine like the sun. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a little child, I can remember there being a solar eclipse when I was in elementary school. And we went out to recess And all of us were standing around, and we knew it was a little bit darker, and we had decided we're all going to look at the sun and try to do it. And so we'd look up and keep our eyes open as long as we could to see the solar eclipse that was taking place. And it it was a stupid, foolish endeavor uh, to do that, but we were all doing it. And, And we'd say, oh, yeah, I can see there's a cutout in the sun that the moon is there, but you can only see it for a split second. Well, we are going to be brighter than that. It will be a pure white light, I am sure. Matthew chapter 13, verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like the stars in the universe. And that's, of course, being a witness here, but we are also going to be radiating the glory of God when we get to heaven. And so he says, if there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body, verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life giving spirit so he's making some comparison and contrast here the first adam gave us physical life through birth and the second adam gave us spiritual life through birth or spiritual birth and when nicodemus in john chapter 3 went to jesus jesus told him you have to be born again and of course he didn't understand what jesus was talking about 
And he says, what can I do, return to my mother's womb? He goes, I can't do that. And of course, he kind of uh, admonished him for not knowing this, being a teacher of Israel. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, we see here that Jesus tells Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus replies, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, some people incorrectly interpret this verse, verse 5, where it says, unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Some people say that you have to be water baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven. And they completely misinterpret the passage here. Jesus is making the comparison where there is the first Adam, physical life, and the second Adam, which is Jesus, is is spiritual life. So he reiterates that in John chapter 3, and he says, Adam was born, and you're born by water. We know that when a child is born, the first thing that happens, or one of the first things that happen, to know that the baby is on the way, is the water breaks, the amniotic sac breaks, and that's called a woman uh, broke her water, or her water broke. And then flesh gets birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. So we have to be born physically, and then we have to be born spiritually. And when Jesus says born again, you can't interpret that as being born from above, because Jesus came to us from above. Adam came to us from below. And so both of these things are true. It is not referring to water baptism. It is simply referring to being born again. We have to be born into the family of God. It is not something that you fill out a paper and sign up for, so to speak. It's you have to turn to God and you have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then scripture says, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so that's how we are born again. I remember back in the 80s, there was a billboard that was around town. Uh, it says, are you born again? And they, they had them all around San Diego. And then I actually got a phone call once asking if I knew what it was. And of course, at that time, I was saved and I did know what it was. But most people don't understand what being born again means. And it has been used in the past as a uh, pejorative where people have said, oh, you're one of those born-agains, huh? Well, yeah, I would proudly say that I'm a born-again. I would not um, have any kind of shame whatsoever if somebody asked me if I was born-again because I want to be part of God's family. So the spirit in us, the new man or new woman that we have, we are supposed to be submissive to the guiding of the spirit which is it is led our spirit is led and guided by the holy spirit and so we know that we have this conflict on the inside and and jesus goes on to make this case in verse 8 of chapter 3 of john he says the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear it sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going so it is with everyone born of the spirit and the only thing that he is saying here is that the Spirit works according to His own will. And we can't see the wind, the actual wind as it blows. But we can see the effects of the wind. 
And so Jesus is saying, when somebody is born again, you can't actually see it take place on the outside, just like you can see a physical birth. You can see that baby being born, but you cannot see that in a person who accepts Christ in a spiritual fashion, it is a spiritual event, and it is not anything that can be recognized. But as you can see the effects of the wind blowing on the trees, you can see the effects of the Spirit of God blowing through the life of the individual, and there is a change of heart. That new nature is made alive inside the individual who was dead and cursed in their sins. And so we should ask the Spirit of God to affect us. I I think most of us, we just live our daily lives, and we don't ask the Spirit to guide and direct so that we might be submissive to Him and do His will. Even though we don't know where the Spirit comes from, from time to time during the day, He will come and work in our lives, and we'll be able to notice the effects if we're submissive to Him. If we're constantly in fellowship with Him, He will affect our lives, and we will be able to affect lives of others around us. And that's how He expects us to live. He expects us to die to the flesh. This is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And if we do that, then we will be able to live for him. But it's something that he asks us to do. And that is the hardest thing. We, we don't want to do that. We want to live according to the flesh. And now he goes through back in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he makes some comparisons and contrasts hear about the spiritual life it says the spiritual did not come first but the natural and after that the spiritual same thing with the birth the physical birth comes first and then the spiritual birth he goes on to say in verse 47 the first man was of the dust of the earth the second man from heaven as was the earthly man so are those who are of the earth and as is the man from heaven so also are those who are in heaven as just as we have born the likeness of the earthly man so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven so four things he makes a comparison and contrast to here the spiritual versus the natural the first man versus the second man the earthly man versus the man from heaven and bearing the likeness of the earthly man versus bearing the likeness from the man from heaven so this transformation is supposed to be taking place now we will carry this earthly nature with us until we die Uh, There have been individuals that have said, well, no, once you get the spiritual nature, you will cease to practice any kind of sin. You will not have to worry about it whatsoever, and that is not true. As long as this body, this flesh is alive, we will house in it the fallen nature. And so those two are going to be dwelling inside the same body, the spiritual nature and the fleshly nature. But God tells us exactly what to do with this earthly or fleshly nature. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he names what these things are. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming Uh, Remember the sexual revolution that took place back in the 70s and the 80s? God says in his word, because of that, his wrath is coming. That's just one of the things that are here. The immorality, the impurity, the lust, the evil desire, greed, all of those things. He said, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he goes on to say, anger, 
rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. So he gives us a, a full list there of what we're to put to death, how we're not supposed to pursue those things. Even though when we do, it feels so good in the flesh. Uh, I know individuals that when they speak, they cannot speak without using expletives. I was telling Patty about it, and one guy I was talking to, probably in three minutes, he used 50 expletives. He just couldn't communicate without that, and often in construction, uh, that is the case. But also there's anger, rage, and malice. Uh, Whether you're driving or you're standing in a line and somebody tells another individual to put on a mask and they say no, and all of these things were to put that away. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 also tells us, about the sinful nature or these earthly nature, the things that are involved in the earthly nature. And he names them again in verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, which is uh, drug use, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So God says that earthly nature, it is corrupt, it is bad, As disciples, we're supposed to subdue it. Now, is anybody going to be successful in that? Uh, No, because we have the flesh that is going to remain with us, and it has its own desires, and the battle constantly rages. And if we're not walking with the Lord, then we're going to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And this is common to all men and women. And when we fail, we know that we have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. And so this is the task that we are under. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, The misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so this constant battle rages back and forth. Now, the last thing we want to do is fall under condemnation because if you look back, even on a daily basis, and you say, okay, was I successful today living a spiritual life more so than I was living according to the earthly or fleshly nature? And many days, I think every one of us could say, no, I totally fleshed out. It was a burnt offering of a day. There's no way this would be acceptable to the Lord. We can easily feel condemned for not being successful in that. But when we turn to God and we say, God, forgive me for I am a sinner, just like the publican who beat his chest saying that he couldn't even look up to heaven. But the Pharisee walked away justified saying, I'm a good person. I I do these good things. And God says, He will give us his grace. When we fail, he will forgive us for that. And every day, his mercy is new. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We struggle with it every single day. Hopefully, we get a little better at it as we get older, but we're never going to perfect the flesh. And God tells us, do not worry about perfecting the flesh. Just worry about crucifying it. He goes on in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
So he lets us know the body that we contain, that, that we have right now, it cannot go to heaven. It is not acceptable to have it there because it is so corrupt. But there are those who do not believe that there is life after death. There are those who do not have a hope in the resurrection. There are those who would hope to extend this physical life without end. And that is what many uh, of the scientists are working on now, is to make this body an eternal body where it does not die, where it actually renews and they're fiddling with the DNA uh, and the cells and how they replicate. They want to keep those cells young. They are learning actually some things from cancer cells because cancer cells just keep perpetuating. They keep on living. They don't die out, so to speak. And they want to transfer the technology that is in the cancer cell to the rest of the cells in the body. And they're working feverishly uh, to do that. And there have been books written about this. Given enough time, will we will, in this flesh, be able to become eternal beings. We will live forever, so to speak. And I don't believe God's going to let that happen. I think that he is going to interrupt that at some particular point. Now, it may be that he says, okay, you're going to get a couple hundred years now, but we certainly will not live forever because God's wrath is coming because of the list of things that I already read to you. Now, with this, this fear death and, and what's taking place in the future, that's people have this ingrained trepidation or this, this shuddering, this idea about death. And the fear of death, I think, is in all people. And the only way that that fear can be taken away is if Christ, by his Spirit, lives in us and gives us this hope. Where Scripture says death loses its sting at that point. We don't have to be so concerned about passing away in this life. Matter of fact, the saint who has lived a long life that comes to the end, whether they're suffering from cancer or heart condition, or some people would call it just old age, some of the organs fail, that individual will still have peace even though they are suffering. But the individual who does not have Christ has no peace whatsoever. And this is a view of what happens in the future. Now, we are not concerned as a, a race of people on the earth about dying so much we live our lives every day and it's not crippling to us that one day we're going to meet our demise and i think god is gracious in in giving us this oversight we look over that day of our demise and we just continue from day to day but we need to look to the future what is going to happen in the future what is going to be the end result how how is this all going to culminate when do we get this new body when is the body resurrected well, the resurrection body is talked about uh, some more in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. It says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself or excuse me, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory over death because he gives us eternal life. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Everything that we do here, everything else is completely in vain except for that which we do for the Lord being a witness for him, being his hands of mercy, being his hands of grace, doing the good works, all of that will last as far as reward is concerned in heaven. But everything we do for ourselves or for selfish motivations, while we are here in this earth, there is no reward whatsoever in heaven. We can't take a single thing with us. No possession, no no thought of what we left behind will even be going ahead of us or going with us as we go to heaven. Naked we came into this world and naked we're going to go out of this world. And so there is no hope for us as far as this world is concerned. There is only the future hope. Now with that, he was describing what we know as the rapture. And I've covered this several times. We just went through the book of Matthew. And I covered it in the book of Matthew, but I'm just going to review it here. This idea of the rapture. Uh, it was in First Corinthians, beginning in chapter 15, verse 50 and beyond. But then the rapture is listed in First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. According to the Lord's own word, I tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So how is this going to happen exactly? Those who are dead in Christ, those who are saints that have already died and been placed in the grave, we've made or we've seen movies about how this rapture is going to take place where graves are opened up and people come out of the graves in this uh, future time of the rapture. I don't think it's going to happen like that at all. Our spiritual bodies are, in fact, spiritual. If you remember, when Jesus appeared in the room, he didn't have to open the door. And so to arise out of a coffin, you're not going to have to go through the coffin and through the dirt and up into the air, and everybody's going to see everyone rising in the air. I don't think it's going to happen like that at all. I think it's going to be instantaneous. If somebody is in a grave and they haven't completely disintegrated, they're instantly going to be in heaven to meet the Lord in the air or in the clouds after this loud command or the trumpet call of God. That is when it's going to take place, but I believe people will not see it physically happen where somebody, all of a sudden, they're going straight up in the air. You wouldn't be able to watch them go up fast enough because it happens so quickly, even if that was the case. But nothing's going to have to be opened. But the people who have died here, God is going to reconstitute their bodies, even if they've totally disintegrated. If they were buried in the ground and the molecules went into the dirt and the molecules were taken up by the plants, the grass of the field, and then the grass of the field was eaten by the oxen and the oxen was eaten by somebody else, all those molecules, God knows where we are. He will simply reconstitute the bodies and transform it and we will meet him in the air. This is also talked about, I believe, in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 through 27. It goes on to say, and I'm only going to read through verse 21, 19 through 21. 
It says, but your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning, and earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. And, of course, we know First Thessalonians talks about the wrath of God, which is coming along with some other epistles and gospels in the New Testament. He goes on to say in verse 21 of Isaiah 26, See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people on the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. So even the Old Testament, it foreshadowed what was going to take place in our future, which is the rapture, which is talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the final place is John chapter 14. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Do you know the way to the place where I'm going? Jesus is the way. That's how we know we're going to heaven. If we trust in him, we're going to go in the rapture if we're still alive. And if we're not still alive, we're still going to go in the rapture if we've been buried in the ground or if our bodies have been cremated. We will meet the Lord in the air. So that is the future hope of the resurrection of the physical body. That's what we have to look forward to. But those people who have not accepted Christ are not going to go in the rapture. They will be at the great white throne judgment. And of course, we know scripture says that those who don't accept Christ will live forever in punishment. That is Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And so we we simply want to understand God told us about the rapture. He wants us to go. He's not willing that any should perish. And all we have to do is receive the gift of salvation. But so many won't. They won't turn to God and confess their sins and receive the salvation because they are after the sinful nature. They love the world and the acts of the sinful nature more than they love Jesus Christ himself. Now, there are some people that say, There is no historical basis for the rapture. It was not taught in the church until the late 19th century at the Niagara Conferences. And, of course, that is not true. We know that the Shepherd of Hermes, which was written someplace as late or early as 95 A.D., some go all the way to 160 A.D., but the Shepherd of Hermes, in that particular text, and you can look it up, it's in Vision 4, Section 23, number 4 and number 5. There are some italicized words in number 5, which means it was probably added. But number 4 says, You deserve to escape it, referring to the tribulation period, because you cast your cares on God and opened your heart to the Lord, believing that you could not be saved by anything except the great and glorious name. Therefore, the Lord sent his angel who has authority over beasts, whose name is Segri, and he shut the mouth so that it might not hurt you, referring to a dragon, the dragon or the enemy, Satan. He says, you have escaped a great tribulation because your faith and because you were not double-minded, even though you saw such a huge beast. And the commentary in this passage goes on to say, 
Go therefore and declare to the Lord's elect his mighty works and tell them that this beast is the foreshadowing of the great tribulation that is coming. So if you prepare yourselves in advance and turn to the Lord with all your heart, you will be able to escape it. If your heart is clean and unblemished and you serve the Lord blamelessly for the rest of the days of your life. Now this is not scripture, but it's making a commentary on scripture. It tells us we are going to be raptured before the tribulation. There are people that do not believe in the rapture whatsoever. There is the pre-tribulation rapture, which places the timing of the rapture before the seven years of tribulation. There's a mid-tribulation view. Some people say, well, that's when the wrath of God starts. I disagree with that. I think the breaking of the first seal is when the wrath of God starts. That's the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are there. And then there are those who have the U-turn theory, the post-tribulational rapture, that when the tribulation is done, we go up and we do the U-turn and come back down. And, of course, that flies in the face of John chapter 14. So that's just covering the views on the rapture and what's out there and and all the tribulation stuff that takes place in uh, whether Ezekiel 38 or Jan- Daniel chapters 7 through 9 or the book of Revelation, some people believe that the book of Revelation has already taken place. That's the preterist view. Of course, I completely reject that. And I'm not going to go into that right now, but those are the views which are out there. But we are not destined for, for God's wrath, which is the seven-year tribulation, and we are going to be raptured according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says in verse 10, While we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And that's the time of God's wrath that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 26 and the other verses that I've already given to you. And so we know that this is a time in which his full fury will be poured out in full strength into the cup of his wrath. It says it's going to be poured onto the earth. So what is stopping this rapture from taking place? You know, if, if, or what, what is stopping us? Or why didn't God say that once we got saved, then we instantly go to heaven? Why, why doesn't it work that way? Why don't we just get our spiritual body then? How come this waiting and how come... We have to go and then experience death. Why all of that? Why don't we just experience instant glorification? Why don't we get to experience the resurrection of the dead now and just leave this place, just have it be over? Well, of course, we know in Second Corinthians, he's not done with us. Uh, he says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So he wants us to perfect holiness. And, and so that's part of the delay. Now, if every Christian worked on holiness, would we be out of here? I don't know. I don't want to guess on what God's timeline is on that. But there's some other things that take place, too, before we are raptured, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, there must be a rebellion that takes place, an apostasy. And the man of lawlessness, he needs to be revealed as well. And so we, we know as we get to the end times, we're looking for these things. Is there a rebellion? Is there an apostasy? Is there a turning away of believers from the church, from Christ, and, and the world just completely turning away from the knowledge of God? Is it becoming a secular humanist society where if you believe in God, or if you have a theistic worldview that you are looked down upon, that you are ridiculed. And, of course, that is the way the world is going. 
And of course, we know this man of lawlessness in first, or excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter two. It says in verse three. Well, I'm going to read from verse one. It says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, which is the rapture in First Corinthians 15. We ask you, brothers, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God." And so God, God's temple, the temple in Israel, has to be rebuilt. The man of lawlessness has to be on the scene, and the rebellion has to occur. We already see that there is somewhat of a rebellion happening now, the turning away from God. And we also know that as in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man, that the world will be filled with violence. I just saw an article this morning that in Michigan and also Fort Collins, uh, there have been these meetings of the Antifa and BLM Inc., and they're getting together with the pro-Trump rally, and they are just duking it out. They're going at each other. And what we want to make sure we're not doing is rejoicing over something like this, that there's actually pushback. One, one guy on the radio, I heard him say this last week, that at Fort Collins where the Antifa protesters showed up, and they met these pro-Trump protesters that were carrying flags and had signs that said Trump. Well, they got into a scuffle, and the Antifa group got the stuffing beat out of them. I mean, there was some video of it, and if you're in for a good fight and you wanted to revel over the Trump forces winning, you would just stand up and yell, yeah, and you see a guy with an American flag, it's on a stick, and he's poking the Antifa people, and you see a guy just doing this windmill thing of punching the the Antifa people that are underneath, and it's just violence everywhere. It's breaking out across our land. And that's because we are turning away from God. We are thinking that we are the ultimate in this life and we are not accountable to God. And look what it leads to when we do that. And so we, we look at these things and we go, well, hey, we're getting closer than we've ever been before. Of course, that's to some that would say that's a ridiculous statement, but it is true. The evidence which is out there and something huge just took place in the media. I have an article here. It's in the Washington Post. It was an opinion by Jared Kirshner. Now, if you know who Jared Kirshner is, he is the son-in-law of Trump. He's married to Trump's daughter, Ivanka. And the article reads, The historic deal between Israel and the UAE shows Trump's strategy is paying off. So why is that significant? That is significant because in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 13, it tells us Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you come to gather your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? What this is about is Russia and Persia, which is Iran, coming down into Israel, taking a spoil. Some people think it's oil. Some people think it's just wealth. 
They're going to come down, and they're amassing troops. They're on the borders right now, Syria, Lebanon up there, and also from down below, the Sudan and Libya. The Russians are already there. They're ready to come in. But the Sheba and Dedan is what we know as the United Arab Emirates, or Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and Israel have a common enemy, which is Iran or Persia. And so the United Arab Emirates is making a treaty with Israel and they are going to support each other. This is unprecedented that this would take place. And so we will see the fulfillment of this, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 13, because of this agreement. And this was set in stone. This article that I'm reading is only about 18 hours old. It's not very old at all. So we look at these things that are taking place in the future and we say, well, what are the signs that we are right there? What is the sign that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, the rapture is going to take place? Well, the man of lawlessness, there's going to be violence in the land. All of these things, the, the uh, apostasy, the, the rebellion occurring, all of this is happening right now. And so we need to kind of wake up if we're sleeping. We need to have those ears to hear what is taking place. Because Jesus, he's right around the corner. And scoffers would say, oh, they've been saying that for centuries. Yeah, but Israel wasn't in the land. There's not a peace treaty between Saudi Arabia, which is Sheba and Dedan. And by the way, the merchants of Tarshish, that is the area of land, the islands off of um, Western and Northern Europe, which is Great Britain. And it says, and her villages, which in the King James is her whelps, which is her children or her lion cubs that type of thing we are a lion cub of the merchants of tarshish and england as well and uh, great britain all of that area all of those countries are involved in saying along with sheba and dedan or saudi arabia saying to russia and persia when they come down what are you guys doing and so they are aligned against israel and russia and Russia is not our friend, just like China is not our friend. And so we see all of these things coming together. It's like a tapestry is being made. All the threads are coming in, and you can see how clear this is. So as we see the day approaching, we want to make sure that we are giving ourselves fully to a life in the Spirit and denying the flesh. Because if we do, it shows that our conversion, our salvation is true. And, and there's no way that we need to doubt that. But if we're living according to the flesh, there's a reason to be worried because the salvation that we have may not in fact be true. So my encouragement to you is certainly believe in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of this body. But live for Christ in such a way that we are an example to everyone out there because we don't want to go alone. We want to take everybody with us. So as we see the day approaching, reach out to those who don't know Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the insight that it gives to us. 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrected body and the resurrection in general that's going to take place. We look forward to that, Lord. But help us not to be complacent and help us not to be apathetic or to be jaded because of all the things that are happening in this world. We knew that it had to get worse before you come back, before the Antichrist comes in and claims to be the peacemaker. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us incredible wisdom, when to open our mouths and when to be a witness to our loved ones, to our family members, to our acquaintances, and even to strangers. 
And we'll do this with the power of your spirit, for we wish to walk in the power of your spirit. Enable us, Lord. Help us to deny the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.